Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hey, I'm Brian. And I'm Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Today, we got a friend. We brought in one of our friends we want to interview that we've uh, we've both got to know over the what past how long three years two years two years at least about two years yeah. think two about two years so that other voice you hear there he's uh sounds great that's uh, that's <laughs> Jeff Watts he is a good friend of ours uh, we've known uh, through basically a mutual work environment but we've known him for the, about that two years uh, he I mean he's kind of been like a peer to each of us and a mentor at the same time so I guess you could definitely say he's an influencer right wouldn't you say oh yeah he's the last uh last guy i worked for before i got promoted to the same rank as him so he has some influence on that oh absolutely i would not doubt it uh so his name's jeff watts uh he was born in uh jose california san jose california wow i messed that up huh uh albuquerque new mexico those where he's raised uh but he served in the united states army uh actually twice right jeff yeah Two, two different times, from 1997 to 2001, and then again from 2002 to 2018. Crazy thing is he is retiring this year. He actually is retired. He's on leave right now from that retirement. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk, kind of take you through some stuff with Jeff because Jeff's had some significant life issues that really changed him at one point. But we want to learn about the early Jeff long before Ed and I ever knew him. Uh, so you were born in San Jose, California, right? Yeah, that's correct. But so why were you in San Jose, San Jose, California? Oh, well, uh, my parents met in New York and, uh, my dad is a computer programmer and he went to go work for IBM, which at the time they had a, uh, large building in San Jose with a bunch of people working in, uh, revolutionizing the computer industry. So, you know, I was the second born of the two. My brother and me, and uh, was born in 1977. 77 makes wait. That means you're still the oldest in here. I'm still the oldest, <laughs> absolutely by years. So, so you went to San Jose. Was was he a part of like uh, like the original like Silicon Valley type thing? Or there's a really old picture. I don't know whether he was like an you know an original original, but it's pretty OG. Like there's probably about 30 people in this crowd of people at IBM, and and you can imagine that it's a really large corporation. Um, so that's crazy. I don't know if that's, that was their total staff of IBM or whether it was just a team you worked on, but, uh, how long were y'all in San Jose? Only a year. So, uh, I was born and they divorced probably in less than a year. And that's how I moved to Albuquerque. My mom, uh, said, you know, enough of this. And she moved me and my brother to Albuquerque. Wow. Yeah. I was probably like one. Oh, so you, you wouldn't even really remember San Jose then. I, I, vaguely remember like one image of like a halloween or something being like really little but i don't know whether it was san jose or albuquerque like i couldn't tell you wow okay so you moved to albuquerque new mexico and then you pretty much what grew up there your whole life yeah i lived there 19 years and then uh moved to new hampshire and that's that new england tie right there man yeah because you know maine uh, 
it's obviously New England too, right beside New Hampshire. You wanted him to be from that area. Well, it's because I like him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the only reason. But I did, and that's what I'm saying. When we were talking before we started recording this, I, I was like, man, I knew, I knew he was from the New England area, but I wasn't completely sure the whole story. I mean, because we've had conversations, but it seems like, like you don't really get to know somebody, especially in our service, right? We we talk, we, 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 you tell stories and stuff and we get to know each other a certain way. But then like just sitting here talking to you, like that's something I never heard of, man, that your dad was like, probably, he was probably like one of the, the founding fathers. I mean, I would say of like the, the whole Silicon Valley idea of IBM, maybe, I don't know, but I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, he, he's known within circles a little bit. Right. Um, headhunters have hunted him down and, and the company he works for, they were actually chasing him for about 10 years before they got a hold of him. And when they finally found him, they were really happy he's been there ever since. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Yeah, that's so pretty good. That's actually one of my influencers is, is my dad. Uh, he was don't, a, don't don't tell us all about him yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we won't tell it all. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Towards yeah, the end. He was yeah. a big influence. That's great. So Albuquerque, 19 years. Then you jump up to New Hampshire. Uh, and I'm guessing you probably moved to New Hampshire probably around, what, 96, 97? Yeah, you'd be about right, yeah. Absolutely. And then – you made this life decision. Why did you make that life decision? Uh, don't laugh. College money. Yeah, it's funny, but back in probably about when y'all joined too, college money was a big incentive. Um, I, I am fourth generation military, so there was a lot of family influence on being in the military, and. Uh, one day a recruiter came along and college scared the, the, it scared the Jesus out of me. I mean, I was scared to death of going to college. I did not fare well in high school. I kept my grades up enough to get a diploma and, you know, I was just bored and kind of sick of school by that point. So the idea of doing another four years of college really scared me. So one day a recruiter called me up and was like, you know, do you mind if I come by and talk to you about joining the army? And I was like, yeah, come on by. And she brought uh, one of those, what is it, were they hometown recruiting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hometown. So she brought them, nobody I knew. I was oh. I was like a kind of a new guy in New Hampshire. I knew the people in my class, and that was it. Okay. Um, yeah, they brought her, and that kind of lightened the mood a little bit. Right. And uh, she kind of pitched it all to me. And the idea of getting a paycheck was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I saw the pay scale and I was like, oh, okay, that starts off pretty low, but then it kind of works its way up from there. <laughs> I think know, it, it was six ninety. Yeah, for no, a it's it, funny because you joined way back when, though, right? Yeah, yeah. it was about five. What was it like three hundred back then? Yeah, it was like five hundred yeah. something a month when I joined. <laughs> yeah, because he had a breaking service too. But I thought, you know, it's funny you say that. I was just on a pay scale today. I was looking at some stuff. I was like, let me check and see what the E one, no time in service, how much. It, them cats are making like $1,600 a month. I'm like, I wasn't even making half that. Like, and then you think, you said like, it's what, 600 and then he said 500 That's insane. But uh, cost of living, right? I mean, but so you, so you saw that and you became kind of what, enticed to say, you know what, maybe this is the direction I need to go. Yeah, and they, you know, the recruiting experience as a former recruiter yourself, I'm sure you know, is kind of a canned experience. Once they know that you're interested, they're like, oh, we just need to go down to MEPS and we need to take the ASVAB, and you give them the whole spiel. But so, yeah. so they did that, and I went down and took the ASVAB, and I did really well, and, and so, uh, which is funny because I joined the infantry. But, uh, 
I did really well on the ASVAB, and we kind of got all the medical stuff squared away for me to come in and, you know, picked a, de- a date, and I joined the delayed entry program in December of 96. December 96. Shot down to Fort Benning. Did you infantry stuff, or what, what did you No, do? I waited seven months, and then No, I'm talking after the seven months. You... Oh, yeah, straight in. Uh, went through infantry OSIT 14 weeks at Fort Benning. Right. Then went to airborne school. I went through RIP. Uh, which is the ranger indoctrination program and made it through their entire program and got told i wasn't really uh what they were looking for oh yeah yeah. and uh so i went to fort drum and i uh froze my butt off for three and a half years really until what what, what do you think about fort drum there i think that we have shared some of the same frostbite is what i think has happened at fort drum with jeff and i is very cold but and then all my wisdom when I had my break in service, I moved about an hour north of Fort Drum into Canada. So nice, <laughs> smart yeah. guy. Yeah. This isn't cold enough. Let's uh, yeah, yeah. let's go let's further. Go, yeah, let's go. I'm not wearing enough mittens. <laughs> I have a question though. So I, I want to know. So you said you know you did very well in the ASFAB, and then you still went in the infantry. But we do see that a lot. So was the infantry a thing in the family? Was there an influence from the family or? Uh, no, uh, everybody in my family was uh, not combat arms. Uh, my grandfather was a pilot. My dad was a computer guy when computer guys were just getting started in the Army. And uh, great-grandfather was a chaplain. So can we go back a little bit then? And uh, w- Were they a part of uh, different wars or anything? Oh, yeah. Well, my dad was drafted to go into Vietnam, but he was so young at the time he was drafted, that Vietnam was wrapping it up by that point. Uh, my grandfather was a pilot in World War II, okay. you know, flew missions in Europe. And then uh, at the same time, my great-grandfather was also in Europe during the same war, working as a chaplain. Oh, is, so your great-grandfather and your grandfather were there? Yeah, they were, they were there. Well, it's not on the same side. So my great-grandfather was on my grandmother's side, uh-huh. so her dad, and, you know, and oh, my grandfather oh, okay. were okay. both, but they were okay. both in yeah. Europe at the same time. That's awesome. I mean, you, 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 did you ever get to hear any stories about that at all? Or did you I'd heard a, a lot of the pilot stories. Uh, my great-grandfather had passed long before I was born. Right. Okay. But, uh, yeah, my grandfather told me a lot of those stories. Do you know what he flew? Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my yeah. head. I don't remember the name I was of it. Just, it's crazy. I was just it was, it was bombers. I know that. Yeah. It wasn't fighters or anything. It okay. was, yeah, I was uh, just listening to uh, the Jocko to no, podcast. 22 or 27 sticks in my head, um, but I can't think of the name of it right hmm. this second. I, I'd have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head either. Uh, but I just it's funny. I was listening to this Jocko podcast, and the, the one I was listening to, I think it was like number 95 or whatever, and he had this guy that was flying like uh, p 30 p22s or p32 i can't i don't remember off the top of my head i mean I, now i feel stupid i should have wrote it down but um yeah it's really i'm really self-conscious about it now because i should know this like, absolutely like yeah. i feel like i should know this because i just listened to it but he was going through these stories and man, i'm telling you i think i was i'm right i'm listening to this stuff in my truck and i'm by myself and i'm laughing like there's somebody sitting there telling me this story so i mean it here nor there that's cool so dad you said was too young yeah, so he got drafted. He went through basic training. They, they, he was he was really smart. He had a physics degree, and he, they were like, "We want you to work in the computer program for the army." And back then, computers were the uh, were probably bigger than this room. Right. Um. So 
he got to kind of work in that program, and that kind of led into the working for the IBM oh, okay. uh, down the road. I yeah. got you. All right, all right, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump back forward to you. Okay. So you were you join you become infantryman, um, and and Ed had asked you that question about the whole family line and whatnot. Uh, you went to Fort Drum, and that is where you you exited in two thousand and one. Yeah, I got out in two thousand and one from Fort Drum. Yep, I did one tour to Bosnia. What month uh, was it when you exited? Do you uh, remember? November. So nine eleven happened. It was like a month after. Yeah. So you were probably. You were probably About like, a month and a half. Yeah. Were you on like your ETS leave or something? Uh, no. Uh, I was having a kid, so that was kind of the driving factor. Was like, your wife was having the kid? Right? Yeah. I I was like, <laughs> yeah, he oh, wasn't yeah, having yeah. the kid. <laughs> I was having a kid. It was a experiment. No. <laughs> uh, my I've wife was junior. having a kid, and you know, I was the father, of course. <laughs> and I uh, I wanted to, you know, the army is very taxing on a family, so I wanted to get oh, out yeah. and watch them grow up, and uh, so I got out. And uh, it took a minute to sink in that, you know, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being a civilian and being military are two different things. And, you know, civilians live a hard life. you got to really work hard to to be successful. So, um, and you have to work hard in the military too. But there's a lot of things that you can get for your family that really was hard to get as a civilian, like health care, you know, things like that. So, um after about a year, I, I decided, you know, about nine months out, I was like, yeah, that was a mistake getting out. I need to get back into the military. And uh, I went and saw a recruiter, and it took a little bit of time, um, but I got back into the Army about three months later. So November, it was almost to the day, a year to the day almost. It's crazy. You know, it's and I would definitely, you know, I want to jump back to what you said about, you know, it can be tough on, on families on the outside and the inside. And, we, and it's funny. We actually, I mean, I've told people this a hundred times. We have like this umbrella that helps us. But the reason for that umbrella is to make sure our mind isn't somewhere else when we are on the foreign soil. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you take care of the family, then the, then the you, stress level is reduced significantly. If yeah. you think if you were out on the front lines and, and, you know, issues were popping up with your family and you had to try to handle them from, you know, thousands of miles with oceans in the way, it'd be, It'd be too stressful. People would break down all the time. But since we have that yeah. network that takes care of everything, our our benefits and then fellow family members that kind of bond together and, and oh, take yeah. care of each other. The bonds we have. But I, you know what? It makes me also think about, and I've done some research about, like companies that take care of or get involved with families or have more family-style programs, they seem to succeed more because those employees don't want to lose that within the organization, you know? Um so we get, we're going to jump forward now back up to 2002. That's when you came back in. Yeah. 2002, uh, we're technically deployed to Afghanistan. So a war is happening. Yeah. And you make the conscious decision. You know what? Hey, I know what the military life is like. I know what can happen to me. But I also know what it can provide for us. And you say, hey, you know, I'm ready to sign me up. Let's do this again. Uh I'm ready to fight, you know, go to go to war for my family, or no, in a sense, you know, I mean, like go to war for my country, but and let my family kind of go through this. I mean, what was the what was the thought process with all that? Uh, well, the struggle had been really real, you know, <laughs> when I was out, and I was like, I need to take care of my family, and I feel like, you know, with the experience I already had with the military, I think I can turn it into a career, 
and then, you know, be set up for success when I decide that I want to move on from the military the next time. So really it was about taking care of my family and setting myself up for success down the road. Um, yeah, I knew we were at war, but it, it really didn't, you know, didn't scare me away from, from the idea. And it's funny you should mention that because I came back in in November of 2002, and by February of 2003, I was in the Kuwaiti sands. I was with you, bro. Yeah, getting ready to cross the berm. I think, so the one thing that's really funny to me listening to him today is I was in the Army. I ETS from the Army. And then I went through it. I was married my my ex-wife now. She didn't want to be a part of the Army family. She didn't want to come to the United States because she was from Canada. So I ETS for her. And then when I'm going through a divorce, I absolutely feel like I made the same decision you did. Okay, I have a son because he wasn't her son. Um, and I had sole custody, and I was like, the Army really isn't that bad, and I can make this a career to take care of this child. So it's like we kind of had the same kind of decision. I came in after 9-11. You know, I came back in and did it all over again. So listening to you, it's like we chewed some of the same soil. We did the drum thing together. You know, we've been here together, and I suffered at Fort Benning, even though I was not an infantryman. Oh, so it's really great? funny to me hearing it and so i worked for this guy and some of this i i didn't realize the similarities and the paths we've taken to get where we are here today so i just wanted to say it's kind of interesting to me i'm really enjoying this it's funny you know though i find it funny uh i just heard the same thing where us service members and those listening that are service members isn't it weird how you can go into a room not know anybody in that room and all of a sudden, it seems like we all seem to twist and journey together. And like we somehow we know it's all it's, it's like this weird conscience we have. We know other service members are in the room and we now have become kindred souls. And it's like there's the other people over there. And then there's us, you know. Yeah, yeah. that empathy thing. Like uh, we've all been through the, you know, the best and the worst of times. Yeah, yeah. it's weird, though. You know, like how, how do you know? Like you didn't, you like, if you don't tell me, but now all of a sudden we just kind of click, you know, or what I find it fun. Yeah. The other thing too, about what he's saying. So if you think about it, so when you made that decision to come back in, we hadn't been in in a time of war in a lot. All right. Desert storm. We're not going to count those couple days, but we really hadn't, we didn't know what a war, what to expect as, as, as an army, because we had been in garrison so much. Like we did Bosnia, but really war war so when you come back in and you're like i wasn't too worried about the war but you really didn't know what to expect either so there's a lot of unknowns that you're like to take care of my family i want to deal with that unknown so that's that's pretty good too absolutely uh so once you joined back in um you just you just signed back up infantry said hey i'm gonna do the same thing and yeah so i told the recruiter i had some demands i was like this is what i want i'm like i'm prior service and I, I'm not a fool. I know you can give me all of these things. I said, I, I want to keep my MOS. Uh, I want a bonus. And I'm not losing any rank. And I wanted to keep the same MOS because I didn't want to go back to AIT. Oh, you just want to get back into it. Yeah, I didn't want to go train some more. I just wanted to get right back into it. So so going to AIT or going back to basic was like, I told him, I was like, it's a deal breaker. Like, I'm not going back some brown round <laughs> screaming in my face. <laughs> You know, eating eating sweaty uh, collard greens and Fort Fort whatever. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm tell you though, I remember like I thought that was the best meals I ever had was like in basic training meals. But it's it's kind of funny. It's like you took a sabbatical. You literally took a sabbatical. Oh yeah, yeah. I took took a year off, got my 
got my head straight. I was like, this is for me. I told the wife when we came back in, I was like, we're staying till retirement. We contemplated it every time when I went to go re-enlist, but every time it was like, we're staying till retirement. So, you know, we can, we can think about it. We can discuss it, but. What was the influence to do that? Like to stay for retirement every time? Like you knew, you, obviously you said it from the beginning. What was the Oh, well, I knew what civilian life was. Uh, uh, now you have the retirement. Y'all know it's coming up. Y'all old too. You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna have, you know, instead of paying for Obamacare, you're get you're gonna pay five hundred bucks a year for Tricare, mm-hmm. for life or Prime or whatever they're calling it. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have some form of paycheck. So if you get tired of your boss, you know, as long as you have you've been saving up so you can tell him to. Whatever. Kick rocks. Kick rocks. Kick rocks barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> you can walk away. I have a friend. He'll, he'll, he most likely will, li- will listen to this podcast. Uh, he lives in Texas. Uh, and I, I think it was, I want to say, and he'll correct me on Facebook at some point, that his goal was, it was like, I want to work at a job and get fired when I retire. I want to work at a job and quit when I retire. And then I finally just want to work at a job and be happy and not worry about anything. And I know for a fact he did get fired and quit a job and just he just walked in and said ah, i quit whatever you know but he knew he could because he retired with like 25 years in that's crazy because that's actually some kind of theme because we had somebody we worked with here that just went off to school and that's his goal after the military a little different language more colorful language he just went to school to change his mos oh yeah absolutely has oh. always told me his oh. goal was to have those three types yeah. of jobs after the army that's, you know, that is funny, and I guarantee you at some point he may listen to this, and I'm not going to say that it may rhyme with Ingeman, but it, hey, it may. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> it may. <laughs> hey, buddy, hopefully you heard us. Uh, all right, so you did the, you, you joined back up, you're doing the infantry thing. Where did they send you first? I came here. You came straight uh, to Fort Campbell. No way. Yeah, so in 2002, uh, they gave me a list of places. They all sucked, except for Fort Campbell and Bragg. Right. Um, I wanted to go back to drum. I don't know why, but I was <laughs> thoroughly convinced that I what that's what I wanted. Um, and I think it was just so my wife could be closer to family. But it worked out really good because we're the right distance away where they don't visit too much. Yeah. So that's yeah, it's the perfect distance away. Uh, so I came back here in 2002, and aside from being a drill sergeant for two years, I've been here. Wow. So, so what when you showed up though? What was the unit you were a part of? I was assigned to Second Brigade, so Second uh, Battalion and Five O Second, or no, Third uh, Battalion, Five O Second Infantry. It was disbanded, but uh, after my first tour in Iraq, but yeah, Third Battalion, Five O Second, and Second Brigade. Five O Second. Oh yeah, okay. So the Widowmakers, for those that know, <laughs> they maybe they'll maybe they'll listen up. Uh, so you were part of that, and then you were part of that initial group with with us and our group um, when we left out of here because we left. I want to say it was, well, so the aviation side, we had to leave quite a bit earlier, but we all met up around the same time. I want to say it was like, what, february Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, we had to leave like in January because we had to do this whole, it was, a, it was a, I'm not going to talk about a difficult situation and getting things done, but, but then February, that was kind of like when we were all were on boots on ground, um, and you were there for the, the full year, and, uh, and then come back. Uh, you yeah, I think we actually set foot in March, the beginning of March. It was. And then returned in February, yeah. that end of the next year, or the beginning of the next year. Maybe, maybe then I was a little off on our, my date. 
because I knew we were there because we had to do we basically had to get equipment and tools and stuff. Yeah. Um, but was I mean it was a fun time, wouldn't you say? Oh, it was a blast. We had that. You remember the sandstorm? Oh my goodness, that first, that really first big one. That one. Yeah, like the three day one or whatever. Yes, yes. I yeah. literally think I still had sand in areas of my body. Uh, it was there. <laughs> Peter, when I came home and I finally like washed. They cleaned it out last year. Remember when I was having trouble hearing? <laughs> Got the last of the sand out. out. Your ear. Now, now it's pristine. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, funny story about that, right? So I had this crew, and we all knew that once we crossed that border, like food was going to turn into just MREs. And none of us really liked MREs. I bet, you know, males ready to eat, uh, for those who don't know what that is. And... We decided, because they had four meals a day, they had breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a midnight chow. We, we would set our alarm clocks for midnight chow. So we would eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and get up in the middle of the night and eat our midnight chow. Every single day for like the time that we were still in, uh, in uh, Kuwait. We got across the border and you thought we were like refugees starving to death because we were like, we couldn't eat enough MREs to keep going. Because we were eating, I mean, you think about how many calories we were taking in every day. I mean, we were wearing it out. So, But your experience uh, there would definitely been a lot different from mine because of our jobs and whatnot. But hold on real quick. Ed, were you there around the same time as us? Uh, I didn't hit Kuwait the first time till March 2004 and I was going a different direction than y'all. I was going to Iraq. So I arrived in Iraq, and then the Battle of Fallujah, the first Battle of Fallujah happened like while we were trying to get settled in. So yeah, I, I was a little 04, Marches, and I'm listening to y'all in these sandstorms. So for the listeners, if you've ever watched the film The Mummy, remember when the mummy is chasing the plane in the big, st- that's Kuwait sandstorm. I that's saw that face. <laughs> yes, that is what it looks like, and you do. You never get, who knows how much sand we're still carrying around Obviously, you got it out your ears, so good job on that. Uh, I, we yeah. may have some somewhere else, but, yeah, no, the, those Kuwait sandstorms and the Kuwaiti heat is something that I will never forget for my whole life. Like, Yeah, it, it's insane that, that when you said the heat, like, I literally said, I see how people can go insane in places like this because it literally, you walk outside and you feel like your whole body is being doused with, like, uh, a hair dryer that's on high heat and you can't get away from it, like, at yeah. all. Yeah, my, my soldiers used to say it was like checking the cookies in the oven to see if they're done, but putting your whole body in the oven to check it. That's how, that, cookies are done. They used to come in the tent. Cookies are done, Sarn. We're still training. Let's get back out there. So, so you, you uh, obviously served with the Fibodeuse then, um, came back. Did you stay here for a while before? Because you, you mentioned the drill sergeant thing. Did you, how long were you here before you actually did that? I stayed here till, uh 2009, 2002 to 2009. Uh, in 2nd Brigade. I just switched battalions wow. when they did the realignment right. of the uh, BCTs. So you got back here in 2002, or it been about 2002, yeah. yeah. November 2003, though. Or, or November 2002, I came back in, came here. Came straight here, and you stayed here until 2009. Yes. That's kind of unheard of for your, your job skill. Yeah, well, with three back-to-back tours to Iraq and getting... Yes. So what would happen is every time we would go to Iraq... Before we would leave, we would know when we were coming back again. Um, so they would ask us, you know, do you want to go to another unit on Fort Campbell? Do you want to go be a driller or a recruiter? Or uh-huh. do, would you like to go to another post and get another assignment? 
and I would usually say something like, I'd like to stay on Fort Campbell and do, you know, another tour. Um, so we would come back and if you didn't have orders taken you somewhere, they would, it was called getting fenced. They would lift the fence so people could leave. And before you could blink, they'd put another one down that would trap you here for another deployment. So when you did three back to back, next thing you know, seven years has gone by and you've been in the same place. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, and it's funny because then you said you left to go drill. You said 2009? Yeah. yeah. I had just gotten back here in 08. Uh, and I was, so we were literally, it's kind of weird. Like we don't know each other. So we didn't need to do what the time periods we're talking about here. Those of you listening. We didn't know each other at all. It is so funny how our paths all cross and whatnot. Because I came back in 08, and I've been here. I've been back here since 08, like the end of 08, like December 08. Uh, but it's it's just, and then you you jump on the drill sergeant thing, correct? Yeah. Yelled at recruits for two years and then came right back to Fort Campbell. Where'd you do that at? Fort Benning. Fort Benning? Mm-hmm. What'd you think about doing that? I mean, what was... Oh, I thought it was great, a great opportunity to, uh, you know, turn civilians into soldiers. Right. So when I showed up there and, you know, time of war, three tours in Iraq, I was like, this is where we are, those new guys that show up all the time, this is where they are created. Right. So I thought it was a great opportunity to really try to mold them and get them in the mindset of, you know, we're at war, this is serious, you know, everything we tell you, you need to pay attention because we're going to teach you the skills that you need to know so that you can survive in Iraq. And that's all through those experiences, every bit of it, right? I mean, because every time. So I went to Fort Benning, and, I, and I'm a I'm a quartermaster. I'm not a combat MOS. I was before, before I got the Army. And the drill sergeants at Fort Benning will tell you, when you go to your AIT, your advanced individual training, you'll know a Benning soldier. And, I mean, I... I I'm sure everybody had a different experience through basic training, but I'm going to tell you between Fort Sill and Fort Benning, very, very different. Benning was a lot more disciplined to me when I went there. And then when I went to Fort Lee, Virginia for AIT, you could absolutely look and say, he was at Benning, he was at Benning, he was at Benning, not at Benning, based on how they stood in a formation, based on how the soldier moved. You could absolutely pick up a Benning soldier and walk up to him and say, where'd you go to basic training? Oh, I went to Fort Benning. Because the discipline at Benning uh, was way different than what I experienced when I went to Fort Sill. It was a lot more strict. I got choked out by my drill sergeant for not shooting expert <laughs> in the range. Nice. So, so there were some other things. Oh, wow. I may or may not have run a, uh, the dirt track in my shower shoes and underwear at Fort Benning. So there may have been some other things that was going on there, but it was different, and you could see it in the soldier. And I went in 2002, so we're fresh into a time of war. And I think maybe there was more of an emphasis, and that's why it was like that too. Wow, that's that's just crazy. Uh, well, so I'm, we're not gonna, you know, we don't want any time open up anything that shouldn't be. But uh, when you were there, when you were doing this whole, you were at Benning, you were doing this whole thing. Uh, at any point, like in your mind, obviously you're thinking, "Wow, these kids really don't understand what is beyond that." Because I just heard you just said, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, they're." There, you're gonna get hurt if you can't do this. I mean, so how? What do you do to influence them? You know, to make them better and help them and create better soldiers out of them. Well, uh, you can share a lot of just experiences that you've had, and to to help kind of frame things. Um, 
and you know get them to interact oh you know at the beginning of most cycles that i've ever heard of any drills aren't doing you're asking them like okay why did you join the army uh and you know get them to kind of admit that you you came in knowing it's a time of war you know you don't really know what you're getting into because nobody who's been to war knows what they're getting themselves into really but uh you know you can get their mindset okay well you have that mindset so you know you introduce yourself as okay well i've been there three times drill sergeant such and such has been there twice and he's been there three times as well and you know we have a uh however many years of experience um you know in combat and you know that's going to help you so you know it, and we kind of explain to them you know this is a program it's hard um some of you aren't going to make it through it yeah uh but you know it's designed to take anybody off the street that meets the minimum requirements to come into the military take them from being a civilian to being ready to go fight our wars so it gives them and you you meet people of all different types some are ready for what the training they're going to go through and some of them are completely caught off guard um so you kind of have to uh you kind of have to be nurturing a little bit, which is funny because you think of a drill sergeant and you don't think of like nurturing, but you got to think <laughs> about, yeah. you know, what if you get a, a soldier that's, you know, quit at everything they ever did, but right. decided that they wanted to join the army. Are we just going to decide they're a quitter and quit on them and send them home? Or are we going to instill discipline into them and show them that, you know, it doesn't matter what you did before you came here. If you, you know, if you follow the army values and our core beliefs you know you you're going to be just fine so yeah exactly and it, and it's to me i think about that w- when you say that in everything we do whether you're a drill sergeant or whether you're you know you're training soldiers back at a unit and stuff it's how we have to kind of are we gonna let them quit or are we gonna just do it with them and make them better or help them along and you know at, at some point i'm thinking you you know you probably had to uh, get them to buy into what you're talking about, maybe through war stories and stuff like that. I mean, did you? Yeah, that helps. But also them seeing the success of what their training is accomplishing. For example, they see they showed up. You, you might have been an athlete before you came here, but you showed up here and we gave you a PT test and you did mediocre. And then now three weeks, four weeks down the line, you're a little yeah. bit better. And then, you know, nine weeks and you're, you know, you're this far along. And they right. see, and they yeah. see also, you know, some people come in and can't do a push up. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, nine weeks goes by and they can do 30 and 14 weeks go by. And, you know, they worked so hard because they were so dedicated. And it's kind of it's funny. Right in the beginning, you'll see these them starting to form a team right away. It's just kind of a survival technique, you know, so that and they use that as a way to get through, which is something that you have to do in the military anyways. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. You know. The team building isn't something that we really had to do. The training was really designed to, for them to form teams anyways, and then we would just show them like, and, and applaud them. Like, oh, you, you know, you had somebody that needed help. You help. We're only as strong as our weakest link, mm-hmm. right? And you helped the weakest link in the platoon accomplish something that he didn't think he could do. That's Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. I mean, and that's why I love that whole team building piece and how to – and it's funny how – we just had a conversation through via, I think it was a uh, messenger and you said, Oh man, you know, that, that idea of consulting businesses on leadership and all that stuff is a great idea. Cause coming from a world like we are, where everyone tries to be an alpha, 
right? There's not a lot of betas or, you know, everyone wants to be the alpha. And, and then you say, once you get out, it's different. You know, there's, there's more, there's less alphas, but you definitely can see where the, there's an opportunity for, to grow people, you know? And, and that's why, and that, I mean, that's one of the things I respect about you. Cause also, you know, that you were training some of our people here where we work now, uh, to, to become better at the job you were doing. It wasn't just like, ah, oh, you know, whatever, I'm just going to do my job. I'm going to show them how to do it. So you were doing it as a drill sergeant, you know, as uh, you know, when you were back on the line, uh, then you come back. Then this, th- is this around the time that you had this life threatening deal when you came off the drill sergeant trail or were you still on the drill sergeant trail? No. So I finished uh, being a drill sergeant. I came back to Fort Campbell uh, this time I went to the 506 Infantry Regiment instead of the 502nd, uh-huh. and uh, I did a tour in Afghanistan. And then after I came back from that tour, that's when they decided that they only wanted three brigades instead of four. Right. So they shut down Fourth Brigade and they sent my battalion over to be uh, Rakasans. Mm-hmm. Um, Might have heard of them. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know who they are. And uh, so they sent my battalion over there, and I was over there for about nine months. And was, you know, uh, reevaluating my life's decisions. I'd been a platoon sergeant for about 36 months at that point. Oh, so, you're ready to move. So it was time for me to go and do something else in the military. And I was thinking about going and working in operations for a little bit just to round myself out um, and then try to get promoted. And uh, I had the conversation with my first sergeant. I, uh, he was my, well, he's the rankingest NCO in our, our unit. So non-commissioned officer wow there's a lot of acronyms i'm just yeah, throwing yeah. in there when we get to talk we have to realize yeah. sometimes we have to have yeah so uh he and he was a mentor of mine and i told him like you know this is how long i've been here and he's like you're right you need to go on and do something else so right. i was going to move from uh you know more direct action to a more operational environment and uh so i was about to start the interview process um for that and I knew a couple people up at, uh, you know, 3rd Brigade, and also I knew people at Battalion, so I didn't think it was going to be hard to find a job. And uh, we, he was like, you know, do this next field problem, and when we come back, you know, we'll figure out where you're going to go from there. So everybody was kind of understanding what was going to happen. Um, so we did. We went to the field, and when we came, when I was in the field, uh, I got this cramp in my back, and... Um, thought I just pulled something so I laid down and I got I kind of got it to calm down a little bit um and then uh we came back it was probably on like a Tuesday and you know we were doing PT all week waiting for the weekend so right. we we were in the field for probably like a week and a half and right. we came midweek so they're like y'all can have the weekend when it comes uh <laughs> so Friday came along and we were swapping out uh, one lieutenant for another as our platoon leader. Um, so it was kind of the new platoon leader, kind of get him used to things, and then, hey, somebody else is going to come and take my spot. That Friday, we were sitting in a meeting talking with the first sergeant, and a new first sergeant was going to come and take his place too. So there was a lot of transition going on. And uh, I started pouring sweat while we were just sitting there talking. And it felt like I needed to you know, go use the restroom. So I was like, hey, first aren't, you know, I don't mean to be rude. I need to go out. I need to use the restroom. He's like, okay, go take care of it. And I, and I left, and I went out, went to use the bathroom, and I started getting that same pain in my back, kind of a stabbing pain in my back. Right. And uh, so I went and did the same thing. I went and laid down for a little bit, thinking it was a back spasm. 
And uh, so I got it to calm down a little bit, and we went out and we had our safety brief, which is where we all talk about the things the soldiers shouldn't do, you know, during the weekend to get arrested mm-hmm. or possibly deported. <laughs> no international incidents, sergeants. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so we had that, and the whole time I was feeling kind of cruddy, and it felt like I was coming down with like a flu bug. Um, so that's what I thought was happening was like, oh, you know, maybe I got one of these weird summer flu bugs. It was, well, it wasn't summer, it was September. Um, but it wasn't cold yet. Cause you know, Fort Campbell doesn't get cold until like November. So we had that meeting and we went back inside and, uh, we were going to, you know, we're calling it a weekend. So I grabbed my rucksack and I picked it up, which is funny cause I had a back spasm, but picking up the rucksack didn't bother it at all. And I took it and I threw it in my truck and I drove home and uh, it, everything kind of calmed down for a little bit. Um, and then that night, it was like it was like the flu took a knee for a second and then the flu came back. It wasn't a flu. Uh, that weekend, I couldn't hold anything down. I spent the whole weekend sweating. And by the end of it, I was dehydrated to the point from not being able to even hold down water that uh, I was having trouble just walking around um, to go use the bathroom or anything like that. So I knew something was wrong. On Sunday night, I lit, uh, you know, the first aren't no, hey, Monday morning, I'm going to sick call. We're going to figure out what's going on. Uh, I think I got a flu. Haven't been able to hold anything down all week, all all weekend. And uh, so Monday morning rolls around, and I have a routine. Every morning I wake up, I take a shower, shave. It's my routine. And it helps me get up and go do PT. Well, I did the same thing that morning. I took uh, I took a shower, and even though I was having trouble walking around and stuff like that, and I got out of the shower just super nauseous. And uh, and I told my wife, I was like, I'm not going to be able to drive to work. Like I'm too dizzy right now right. to drive a car, so I'm not going to try to drive. Um, I put my PTs on, and I told her, I'm like, take the kids to school then come back get me we're gonna go to the er so we went to the er and after the kids got taken to school and i was sitting in there and uh uh you know we kind of got triaged as if it was a flu so you're gonna sit in the er until every other little thing gets handled Mm. and you're gonna get seen last well i'm getting i'm physically ill while i'm sitting there you know vomiting and in the waiting room, they gave me a little bucket, and yeah. and uh, my wife went and chewed out the nurse and was like, look, he's over there vomiting in the waiting room. Right. Can y'all at least take a look at him? And the nurse took a look, and I think she ran some vitals, and then the next thing I know, I was in the back room. Um, you you know, don't remember seen... them taking you back? No, no, I remember them taking oh, me back. Okay, I sat okay. down for like oh. a minute, and then they called my name, and I went back okay. into the one of the, you know— little stalls or whatever they call it in the ER. Um, And uh, they ran some labs. And after they ran the labs, they're like, okay, uh, this is uh, pancreatitis. But we think what happened is, is that you had a gallstone and it ripped through your pancreas. And when it, when it ejected the gallstone, we think that's what happened. Um, So they went into MRI but they didn't find, uh, you know, a gallstone, which probably should have shown up on the MRI. Um, 
So they got me real high on morphine because uh, <laughs> they knew once they identified pancreatitis, they're like, well, it's really painful. So, And I've been complaining like, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. So they, they gave me a bunch of morphine and did all their battery tests. And they decided that Fort Campbell uh, Bach uh, couldn't handle properly treating pancreatitis. Oh, at the time, uh, yeah, at the time. Yeah, they, and there was uh, there were specialists at Skyline that they could send me to. They right. could take care of me better. So they sent me to Skyline. Um, got an ambulance, brought me down there. My family met me down there. I got there at like two in the morning. Right. And uh, I sat in that room until the morphine wore off and probably a couple hours longer until finally I just couldn't take it anymore. Excruciating pain. Yeah. And I got up and I walked down and I told the nurse, I'm like, I don't know who you got to talk to or, or how soon a, a, a doctor's planning on coming here, but I'm in excruciating pain right now. Right. Um, they gave me a bunch of morphine at the other hospital and it all wore off and now I'm in pain and they're like, okay, we're going to get you a doctor there. I think I saw him in the next hour or so. And then, uh, so treating pancreatitis is kind of a funny thing. Uh, they put a, kind of like the nasal pharyngeal up your nose, but it goes all the way down to your stomach and they basically pump your stomach dry. Um, because if you eat anything while you have pancreatitis, it just flares it up more. It's inflammation of the pancreas. Yeah. uh, It's funny. I was looking it up while you're sitting there talking. I'm looking up like, what in the world is it? It's inflammation. It's insane. So if you eat anything, it's just going to inflame it again, which is why every time I tried to eat something, I would get extremely nauseous, wouldn't be able to hold it down. And that was kind of the cycle I was going through. So their idea is, I mean, they kind of try to starve you a little bit. Right. To try to reset things. Um, So what they do is they, they, uh, they put in my bicep, and I'm pointing to them. My bicep right here, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. You can see the two scars right here. Yeah. Uh, so the top one right here is where they ran a larger IV. It's called a pick line. Right. So that they can pump nutrition. Uh, so you were still IV. getting nutrients as if you were eating, but you're not eating. Yes. So it looks like a, like the milkshake yeah. better. Uh, they got bags of it. Um, really expensive. No, I remember you telling me about like you can't. You were like drinking tons of milkshakes, but never got to taste one. Yeah, you could smell them though. You could oh, smell it. Did they smell okay? It just smells, I guess, kind of like flour. Oh wow! Yeah, it just tastes like like flour and water. Oh, that's funny because I look over and what's Ed doing? He's drawing a flower on his paper. <laughs> so, so it's funny, right? Is Jeff not the only person who would make a milkshake joke about such a serious condition, though? Yeah, it, 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 and that's and that is why we've gotten along. That's why we invited him to be a part of this. Yeah. You know, like because you think about it, like this is episode three. We invited a good friend because we knew he would make the show uh, what it is. But uh, so let's get back to this. The, you're in there. They're doing all this. This is. Did they have to do any type of surgery or? Yeah. So the first surgery happened within three days. They tried to send a scope in, uh-huh. um, that with a camera on the end of it to go just kind of poke around and look to see what's going on in there. Um, so what they did was they scoped down my throat and made an incision in my stomach, and then uh, the scope goes through the stomach wall. As soon as they went through the stomach wall and saw what was going on in there, it was abort mission. Uh, everything they said was too inflamed to do anything in there. I don't know what their plan was anyways. but So they, they backed it out, you know, sewed up what they had done, pulled the scope out, and uh, 
uh, woke me up, and I guess apparently I had a, I woke up kind of violent and uh, was kind of flailing and grabbing people. So every time I got a surgery after that, I kind of let them know, like, hey, when I wake up, you know, I might be a little crazy. Uh, but every time after that, nobody complained that I was trying to grab anybody or, or freak out. Uh, so that was the first surgery. Uh, they, they put me on what's called TPN. It's a total perinatal nutrition. Uh, for 45 days, I didn't eat. Uh, I started eating snacks probably after about 30, just because I told the doctors that that's what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't have, have substance. Well, I couldn't be around food anymore. Uh, I, I don't know if you all have ever tried any of those extreme diets where, like, you cut out carbs or anything, and then all of a sudden, like, cookies are the greatest thing ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do the uh, – well, he got me into the intermittent fasting, and I – you know, but actually, I like it, so I don't know. It's weird. Now, imagine uh, not intermittently fasting for about 30 days and somebody eating food anywhere within a city block. So your weight went <laughs> – <laughs> You get really hungry. So your weight went from what? To what? I went from 205 to 185. 205? So you took off 20 pounds. Yeah. The, yeah, the first yeah. time. Yeah. The first time. The first time I lost weight, yeah. Did you say you lost more? Yeah, that was that was like the midway point. Oh, that, wow. We were just getting warmed up. Okay, well, let's get yeah. it going then. Let's hear, so, let's hear about Jeff starves to death. Yeah, so I got out of the hospital after 10 days. I didn't eat for 45, uh, except for a couple of snacks. I got caught eating peanut butter by my wife. And she says, I'm going to tell the doctors. And I said, no, you're not. I'm going to tell the doctors. <laughs> so the Your next... wife's got – she's snitching, huh? It was, she was trying to get me to do the right thing. Uh, yeah, they didn't yeah, want yeah. me eating. And I was like, look, I, I got to eat something, small snacks. They're like, okay, keep them healthy, and we'll adjust the nutrition amount so that it's not as fattening, so that if you eat food, it's not going to affect it so much. Um, after 45 days, they they took the pick line out. Um I was eating food regularly then, and uh, but it was a, a low-fat diet. The next surgery was uh, done in November, and was it not? Was it November? No, it was December. December. You were starving. You're not going to remember that yeah, now. Yeah, it was, it was a couple years ago anyways. <laughs> uh, December, the beginning of December, I went in for a surgery, and the goal was to take out the gallbladder so that uh, it would stop enraging the pancreas. Inflaming is the correct word. But uh, take the gallbladder out, and then uh, when my pancreas, it basically blew up. About half of it died. It's called necrosed. Half of it died and just formed pockets of fluid throughout my abdomen. Um, so part of the surgery was to remove the gallbladder, and part of the surgery was to uh, put a tube down my throat again, uh, up through the nose, down the throat, side of the stomach wall into one of the it's called a pseudocyst but it's a pocket of fluid dead pancreas fluid and drain that um gallbladder came out successfully tube draining the uh pseudocyst was not super successful so at the end of december i had another surgery try again Mm -hmm. um not super successful. The reason why I was at Skyline is they have a, a way of doing an MRI so that they can kind of, uh, it's called pancre- pancreatic protocol. So I did a whole bunch of those to look at the progress of those pockets of fluid. Um, so got out of the hospital uh, New Year's Eve 2014. 
went back in two weeks later for another 10 days, did another surgery, trying to drain those pockets again. They weren't having any success with this, go in and do conventional surgery. So we switched to trying to, uh, it was a CT-guided procedure where they would take uh, something similar to piano wire, and they would poke it into my side, and then they would slide IV over the top of it and then pull the wire out and then hook a, something to catch the fluid. So they did several of those to try to catch the fluid that way through the side of my abdomen over here. Um, around April, March, April, I started showing signs of improvement. I think March was the last of those CT-guided procedures. I did three or four of those. Um, I was kind of famous in the uh, radiology department of Skyline because... I'd had like 14 or 15 uh, CT scans over the course of like three months, which is wow, an man. incredible right. amount of uh, mm. radiological work. Um, so around April, I started showing signs of improvement, and they'd assured me like, you know, you survived through the worst part, so probably at some point this is just going to be a distant memory. Um, so around March, April, that started showing signs of, you know. Recovery? Yeah, starting to recover. Um, but in... February, March time frame, uh, where they had been doing the conventional surgeries and making their incision, where they go in through the uh, muscle wall of your stomach. When they had sealed that back up on the way out, uh, the sutures split open. So uh, about uh, 9 by 13 centimeters of my stomach wall was open with just skin in between, you know, organs and air. Um, so it would form a bulge when I was standing and it would stick out about three inches, it was about the size of maybe a softball Good. Um, that would poke out when I was standing. And when I lay down, they called it self-correcting because when I laid down, it would go back in. Right. So it was like the alien. It, <laughs> it freaked me out when it first happened because I was like, doc, something's wrong. Like when I sit up, yeah, yeah, it just yeah. kind of pokes out and it started off kind of small and it got a little bit bigger over right. time, but they weren't sure what they're going to have to do. Keep doing the surgeries. So, they didn't want to repair it right away because they didn't want to repair it and then have the pancreatitis kick back up again. And then they need to cut all the repair out of the way to get back in there. So they didn't repair it until September of 2015. So you had to be like real cautious of this or, I mean, like, cause it, could it, I mean, it could rip open, right? I mean, well, the, the part that wasn't split was pretty strong. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Um, it was just really weird, you know, because it's basically, it's your, uh, the small intestines that's poking out there. Right. It's poking through there, like yeah. brains. Just So it's funny. Quick story about that. I have a friend, uh, and he'll probably end up listening to this. His name's Mike. And he lives in Arizona. When he was a kid, he it was something to do with his abdomen wall. And you know, I, I guarantee he hears this, he's gonna come back, he's gonna come here, no man, that wasn't what it was, you know. But he was laying on the floor watching TV and there was something about his abdomen. His intestines popped out onto the floor. His parents had to come and scoop them up, wrap them back up to him, take him to the hospital, and then get sewn up. And he had like this weird, crazy scar. And I, I want to say, I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly because he was on that original deployment to Iraq with us. But he told me that story, and I thought, how does your your guts just pop out? And now you're telling me, this, I'm I'm waiting for you to say, and then my guts they just popped out, you know. So, but so they went to this. <laughs> you went through this piece of it, and uh, you. You're in recovery now, but you're kind of like on that teetering edge of anything, or what's going on with that? Uh, 
Okay, well, they they sewed a mesh in there um, in September, and right. so that's solid. Um, they he anchored it really well. My surgeon was a former army officer, and kindred was, souls. Yeah, so he he knew that the best bet for me was to stay in the army. So he anchored it. Uh, he anchored it as best he could. Um, now in July of 2015 before that surgery happened uh hey, so it's gonna take a picture right in the middle of it and he, you're gonna stop and stop talking uh, okay hey we'll make sure we post that picture uh <laughs> those so, moments july uh i was recovered but i was still feeling uh crappy once in a while right I'd feel like garbage um so I let the doctor know, hey, you know, I've been feeling really crappy. And he's like, he pulled the labs and he was like, yeah, your your A1C is really elevated. And that is the one of the indicators of diabetes. So I was like, well, great. Here's another thing. So he's like, I'm not a specialist in it. I'm not going to treat it. I'm going to send you to a specialist and get you taken care of. So I went to the diabetes specialist on Fort Campbell and she sat me down and explained to me what was going on. It's kind of a, it, I've talked to several doctors since, and it's kind of a special kind of diabetes. You know, you have type 1 and type 2. Right. Well, mine is not quite either one of those because it's only happening because the pancreas is a lot smaller. It doesn't have full function. Right. So they, they're calling it kind of like a combination of the two. We'll and call it diabetes one and a half. Yeah, or? we'll call it like type 3 or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it doesn't have a name. Uh, it's, you know. It, it hasn't been diagnosed with a name or anything that I'm right. aware of. That's um, crazy. The, the VA doctor had some way of framing it, to, and he's like, I know what to call this. Yeah. We're good. He has a name. Maybe we'll get a hold of him and be like, hey, man, what's that name? You know, yeah. <laughs> Just let us know. Lots of beaties. Yeah. Lots of beaties. Lots of beaties. <laughs> <laughs> I invented my own diabetes. Type Watts. We're called diabetes type Watts. It's yeah. my own special brand. So you were going through this piece. Um. And are you on the road to recovery now, or I mean, what? Uh, diet and exercise has kept it at a normal uh, rate. So okay. I adjusted the amount of sugar that I ate, um, and the amount of you know. What carbs was the total weight loss, bro? Okay, uh, so after the fourth surgery, mm-hmm. I was at 170 pounds. Wow. Yeah. 35 pounds. Drop 35 pounds. But obviously you put it back on, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And then oh, some. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll on, put, I've been on leave. I've been. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's like, it. Maybe I should cut back a little. <laughs> that terminal leave. That's what it does. Well, it's funny because uh, you came by here what, about a month. Not even a month ago. Maybe a couple weeks ago. And you're like, yeah, I tried the beard thing, but I, I don't like that beard thing. You know? Uh, it was it was too weird. I couldn't get used to yeah. that. Yeah. Tickle well, on my nose. <laughs> See. You were here, and you were part of the W the uh, WTB at that time, right? Uh, toward, with the diabetes piece, the warrior transition. Yeah, I was battalion. diagnosed with it while I was at assigned to them. Yeah, right. So you spent some time there, and you got to see the different things that go on there. Can you just tell us, kind of like, wh- I mean, obviously we can't go into detail of things like these, but like, what are some of these good things that are coming from that? Like that, the idea to because we never had that before. If you remember correctly. I, I'm thinking I'm thinking back in time, like, when did that WTB start? And if anybody doesn't know what that is, that's the Warrior Transition Battalion. Am I correct? Yeah. Warrior Transition Battalion. That's where people go in, 
they're hurt, sick, uh, they're going through some really life-changing situations, and it's allowing them to either transition out of the Army or transition back into the regular force. What are some of the good things that you saw out of that place? Uh, they have a lot of good programs geared towards uh, uh, active reconditioning of with whatever you're dealing with, you know, what, whether you were injured or whatever. Um, so they have programs that, that you know, get you active again in ways that you're not going to injure yourself. Um, they have programs to, um, if you go there for, say, you have, like, PTSD or, mm-hmm. or TBI, uh, traumatic brain injury, or something like that, they have programs uh, set up to help you, um, just quality of life programs. Uh, what's, it's not physical therapy. What's the other? Occupational, occupational therapy. therapy yeah. yeah. So occupational therapists are kind of supervising the, the physical, they have types of physical training and, and other types of training to meet right. your needs so that you're more informed. If you transition out of the military, you know, you know, and you're ready for the transition. And then, and, and then you helped you help there, you worked there, but then you also got to work with what was called ACAP back then. As the, uh, yeah, now it's was called, it SFL TAP? Was it SFL TAP when you were there? Or when was I was it there, it was, yeah, it was Soldier for Life Transition Assistant. Okay, so it was prior ACAP, but Soldier for Life Transition Program? Yeah, Transition yeah, and, Assistant. And, and for those who don't know what that is, that's, like, that's basically what the military's come up with to help us in uh, in the service to transition out of the military and to do it in a manner that, you know, it's hard to put in words what we do because our lingo, our taught way of talk, how we go about things is completely different. So you helped at that program. You get to meet Mr. Riggings. That's what I knew. I knew him from. Uh, I knew him. But when you were there, what were you doing? Okay, I was uh, working as the uh, I supervised operations. Right. Um. So. I would. I was responsible for maintaining the building. Mm-hmm. Um, I helped with the planning of job fairs. Uh, I worked. They didn't have supply, mm-hmm. so I worked in conjunction with uh, Department of Human Resources Supply uh, to help us procure money so that we could buy. Because that place goes through a lot of paper and a lot of ink, printing up all those forms for the soldiers that are tra- transitioning out. Right. Um, I got acquainted with the instructors. I helped with the uh, weekly job hiring events. They have one every Wednesday. Uh, so local people come around for that, and sometimes some national companies come for the weekly ones. And then about, I would say about three times a year, they would have a, a national and a, a regional job fair to help soldiers link up with uh, you know, employers that are looking to hire veterans. Right. At, at any time you want to cut in, because I know I've been asking a lot of questions, do so, man. Uh, well, God, I'm going to throw another one at you real quick. So you did you did the – you saw the WTB. You saw how that worked. You you worked as part of this transition thing. When you think back to that, those – you know, the sickness that you went through, which was, I mean, life-threatening, obviously, um, a tough time in your life, probably one of the would, – would you definitely call it your, the toughest time in your life? Yeah, it was one of the hardest things Probably I've ever been through. Probably by far, yeah. And, and, and that goes along the lines of the deployments and the things that went on during those deployments, probably. Um, with that, what do you, I mean, kind of what, what was your takeaway from being able to, now that you're back, kind of on your feet, you're doing things, like what was your takeaway from the sickness and kind of like how you transformed? Because 
I would think you transformed through that and you've kind of looked at things differently. What, what do you, what do you think? Well, uh, I, I made a post on this the other day. I don't, I think a veteran posted something on, in a private group. Um, or it might have been, no, I think it might have just been a regular public post. Uh, somebody was feeling bad about something that happened in Iraq. And I said that, uh, you know, life is fleeting. It's a gift. Um, it's short. And, you know, you got to live it to the fullest. And that was something that I kind of realized while I was there. While I didn't let, you know, the idea that I might die during this creep in, because I think that uh, having a positive mindset when you're going through any kind of uh, struggle, whether it be, you know, physical, mental, or, uh, you know, an illness or an ailment, if you keep a positive attitude, I think your survivability goes up tremendously. I think, uh, right. you know, mental mindset is, is the key to recovery in any process. So I didn't let that creep in, but it was interesting because I used to be in really good shape. I knew what combat needed, and, you know, I worked really hard to stay in shape to be able to, if you stay in shape, your job's easy. If you let yourself get out of shape, it becomes really hard. Um so being at peak physical condition and having that fall apart over the course of about, oh, I would say it was a week yeah. where if I walked, you know, 100 feet, I'd be pouring sweat, you know, in a hospital gown um, versus like, you know, we used to do uh, burpee broad jumps for a half a mile with my platoon, you know, like once a week. And yeah, I'd be pouring sweat then, too. But I was pouring the same amount of sweat walking down the hospital hallway. Did you find that to be a bit of a mental defeat? Uh, it was a big blow. To, but um, I had, you know, the doctors were encouraging me, like, look, you got to get up. You got to move around. So I was kind of using that. So I would get up multiple times a day and roam the halls with, I had, you know, apparatus, IVs on wheels and stuff. And I'd be all hooked up to and I'd call the nurse and ask them to unplug everything or is it Finally, I stopped asking, and I just did it myself. <laughs> That's and it. I would get out, and I'd go walking up and down the halls. Yeah. You know, it, it, there was it was like a Y shape, so I'd do like a couple laps through there, mm -hmm. and they just got used to me just trying to walk through there. Um, but it was just kind of and, – and a doctor said it to me. They're like, I've seen people that didn't have it as bad as you, and they didn't live to tell about it. And that was kind of that eye-opening experience, like, okay, well – I'm really lucky that I'm that I'm, I'm going to live through this because right. I was already certain, like, unless something freakish happens and I'm taken in my sleep or something, I'm going to live through this. And I just kept that positivity, and it kind of changed the way, you know, I looked at how I approach, you know, yeah. what I'm doing, how I, uh, you know, interact with my family, and, you know, everything. It, it affected everything and just... And you just brought up something that, like next thing it was on my brain. Like you're a dad of two boys, and you're and you and your wife. Uh, how did this? How did this affect them? Uh, they're tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are really tough. You could tell it wore on my wife pretty hard. Um, my kids kind of bottled it in, right? Um, and just put on a brave face, right. you know, watching me get carted off for surgeries and stuff like that. And I felt, you know, really bad. And, you know, I'd say a little prayer before they wheel me into the room. Like, you know, yeah. let me get back to my family. You know, wow. don't let this be the time now. And, and you know, I, day by day, I got through it. Wow. That's, I, I mean, I could, I could only imagine. Like, I mean, because you're, you're, you're basically, that's a long period of time. And she's basically buckling in there. She's, she, I mean, she's the one. She's holding it together. Yeah. But the funny thing is, that happens I'm not saying that part, you know, I give you, 
hey, that's amazing uh, that you made it through that. But you think about it, every year we have soldiers that go away, or soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, all that, they go away, and then they have that person that's back here that are holding it together. It, I mean, it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that because not everyone can do that. Yeah, it, she yeah. put up with a lot because I was kind of, you know, weak and whiny. Hangry? Yeah, hangry <laughs> and temperamental and... And, you know, there was a lot of opioids involved with the treatment process. And they're like, oh, we don't want to give you too many. You know, you'll get addicted. So was that a fear of yours, too, though, that you may become addicted? I wasn't scared of getting addicted to it. Um, no? No, I, I had the mindset and the, to, I was thoroughly convinced that any time that I needed to and could. And there were times when I would quit using them and they were still prescribed to me. And I was like, nope. I would wean myself off of it. I was like... Pain uh, is a funny thing. It will trick your brain will trick you into thinking you're in more pain than you are, so that you'll eat the pills. So, and I was aware of this. And again, it goes back to my dad. He had said, you know, they had prescribed him opioids one time, and he started to realize, you know, that my brain would trick me into thinking that I was in more pain than I was, so that I would eat a pill. So I, I was real good at, you know, and the doctors were like, oh, you're gonna get addicted, and that was even more of like a challenge. Like, no, I'm not. Like, you're telling me what I'm gonna do. So I'm going to prove it wrong. Um, so, you know, before they even asked me to wean off of it, I would already wean off and go in and be like, you know how you said I was going to be addicted? Yeah. Well, I weaned myself off last week. Hold He's my like, beer. Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. wow. Wow, man. Uh, but during this, during this end, this end piece, uh, I wouldn't say end piece. There was a point in time, though, you thought, oh, no. I'm about to get removed from the army. All right, so you're about to have this this other life-changing thing. Now, was this before you started working for SFL TAP or after you started working for SFL TAP? I started working for SFL TAP uh, out of a recommendation from a retired sergeant major that, you know, you go work there. A lot of people that are trying to return back to uh, normal duty mm-hmm. go over there Um you know, there's some connected people over there that'll help you out as you go through the process. About two months after I started working there, I got a phone call and they said, okay, you're about to be put in the system. We're going to medically discharge you. Um, so, of course, y'all are probably familiar with it. You have several appointments you got to go to right. as part of IDES um, process. I don't even know what that stands for. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a process. Yeah, it's the word that means that you're about to get booted out of the army for uh not being fit for duty uh so i reported for to an appointment and there was a doctor there and he started asking me questions and i you know told him the same thing that i told y'all today about you know what i went through and he's like he asked me a series of questions and he's like i don't really understand why you're here and i said well i really just want to return to duty Uh, and i'm going to let you know right now like i'm going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that that happens and uh he says, okay, well, uh, I'm looking at your labs and some of the other things that are incomplete in your records, and I'm going to do you a solid, and I'm going to kick you out of this process and so that you can get everything current, so that you can enter it prepared to be separated from the Army, and you might have a fighting chance of not being put back in the system to get discharged from the Army. Oh, so you're saying this dude allowed you, he can kind of like put it on hold? He said that my packet was so messed up 
that it would have taken them months to straighten it all out and it would be easier to kick me out of the system to fix it to fix it than to try to do it while i'm in this system all right so let's let's look at this um let's say the med board went through what is the difference in the retirement you have now than to that that's that's the million dollar question nobody i won't say nobody knows but the people that get discharged and you know before and then after it's it's really hard to tell Mm -hmm. um the the va you know process of identifying what you're going to be compensated for you know uh i talked to the one the reps the the advisors over at soldier for life that work in the same building from the va they teach the classes and everything and they're like we're not really sure who gets the better compensation the people that make it to 20 or the people that get out um because it's just a different process of compensation. Right. Um, if you hit 20 years, you know, you fall into a, ca- a certain category and, you know, they calculate it differently. Um, so I would guess that it's comparable. Yeah. I fought to try to make the 20 because I thought that it would be better compensation. Okay. So it was, it was, it was a uh, subject to, you know, th- that you thought about often though, right? Oh I mean, yeah. It ate at me every day until, uh, yeah. Till that doctor basically said, you know, you're no longer in the system. And it ate at me every day after that until uh, the brigade surgeon from Bach, he wasn't even a doctor that worked for WTB. He was for, for Bach, one of their surgeons. He signed return to duty. Right. And I didn't ask any questions. He was like, <laughs> yeah, send me back to the motherland. I said, you know, roger that. And I was like, okay, I got to go get a job. Um and then I interviewed to come here. I, yeah, I was trying to get assigned to Soldier for Life as their operations NCO, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't do the reassign. They wouldn't assign me to it. So wow. I interviewed to come here um, under the false pretense that I was going to go work for Battle Staff. <laughs> <laughs> and it took oh. it took WTV and uh, whatever the shop is at division that cuts your orders to, for post reassignment. Yeah, is that G one? Should be G one. Yeah, yeah. G one yeah, yeah, yeah. uh took forever to cut me orders. So when I showed up here they had already filled the position at battle staff. So I came to I took an office next to this dude with, with really nice hair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was the luckiest uh, day of my life. Was oh, wait, wait, was that you were still you were you were in his, in his platoon when he showed up beforehand. There was right? no first platoon. Oh, there wasn't. Remember, they shut it down. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because the other guy, the the other guy left. They yeah. shut it down. How many cycles? I was, was on loan. It was like two cycles. Two I think cycles. Was, I think. Yeah, because yeah, he came. I was on loan. I think I had just stopped working for you, Brian, and I was on loan to the angry guy. And uh, <laughs> with a promise, guy. I was going back to first platoon. Oh, we talking about Turk. Yeah. <laughs> we try not to name names, but yes. Yes, we are talking about What up, Turk? You know I love you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was on loan, and then he was being trained. And when I got him, I think it was his first cycle being the senior by himself. Yeah. I think. Right. And that's when I started working with him. Unsupervised. And, and honestly, I think we more worked together than you worked for me because <laughs> if, if Haley wasn't in that platoon with some of the – or. Ed wasn't in that platoon. <laughs> uh, I don't know what would have happened. <laughs> well, he, bring, he brings a little light to the scene, you know. I mean, 
it was funny. Uh, I want to say it was in our first our first uh, episode of this. Uh, so two episodes ago, actually. I make it sound like it was a long time ago. But uh, the first episode, we talked about going to each other's offices as a fortress of solitude. And you probably could relate to that. Like, sometimes you just have to un- unplug. You back away from everything that we're doing. We just go chill. We, what we used to call it? Crackling? Crackling. Yeah. Yeah, crackling. When we get the coffee going. We just have some coffee. We do some like that one time we did the selfie and sent it out to like all of our peers and our seniors. To, like we're just chilling, doing nothing. That was after you two kicked me to the curb. Remember the junior seniors? So the ones who hadn't been promoted yet. The E seven <laughs> went on the other end of the building. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the only two E seven seniors. Yeah, yeah. Were side by side. Remember y'all kicked us it was, out. It was. It was just of, you and I were the only. And yeah. then well, then the other guy showed up for a second uh, yeah. later on. But yeah, it was funny. Then we start having junior senior meetings over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and then all of us made it except the last one who just got promoted. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I would tell you, um, definitely from the point of view where we come from, like, so in the army we do all these crazy things and we go through some struggles. But then I heard, like, when you first told me this story, and actually telling me on this podcast is a lot more detail, a mo- lot more stuff that I than I remember you telling me the first time. Yeah. And I'm just like, I mean, I'm sitting like, dude, I got goosebumps. I think he and it's not because it was cold in here. Yeah, he's down. So in the past when he's told me this, he kind of downplays yeah. it. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I could have died. He doesn't say, yeah, 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 yeah almost. Yeah. I could have died. And he kind of makes it really seem like, well, I could have stopped at that stop sign, but I did. It's just kind of an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. I, I just rolled through and then got, you know, yeah, T-boned. Whatever. Yeah. It, it was optional. Uh, <laughs> Stoptional, but no. now he goes into detail, and it's so much more dramatic. And I've been sitting here caught up in what he's saying, not thinking about what I want to say because I'm listening yeah, to yeah. Jeff. So you turned into the audience yourself. Yes, it's yeah. insane. And I was captive. <laughs> it is. It is captivating. But I also find it to be remarkable that you. I mean, you could have took the easy out any time. Whether I mean, and whether just giving up. Because you like the doctor said, you seen people. He's seen people with less, uh, not live for, and you just kept going. And you said the positive attitude, and and we're not. We didn't even. We didn't even really touch on any of your deployments and things that have happened during a deployment or anything. You know, because everyone has their own little situation that uh, we've all kind of oh, had. Yeah, those. you'd have to set the. That we'd be doing six hours of. Yeah, yeah. We're not trying to like. Show. We're, we're not trying talking to... about the five deployments. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But. But those are things to, you know, to make a person want to give up. But, like, you lost no hope, it feels like. And I, and I, I would definitely say, Jeff, I mean, I find that to be – I find it to be in, a, a big influence, you know, just to kind of sit here and think, you know what? I re- one, I don't hope – I hope my pancreas does not give out on me. I don't hope that on it. Hardly anybody. There's a couple people on the I hope your pancreas blows Absolutely up list. Absolutely not. Oh, wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but nobody, nobody in this room uh, – Nobody that still works at the academy or anything like that. Oh, <laughs> well, we won't talk about that. And actually, that's the first time that that's been let out that we work at an academy. Oh, my we bad. never, we haven't said it yet. No, you're fine, man. Um, but with that, obviously, you had that was a major influence in in the direction you've gone in life. You know, um, you have a degree. What's the degree in again? I have two degrees. I have, two degrees. Yeah, I have an associate's and a bachelor's. Associates in General Studies, Bachelor's in Legal Studies. Legal Studies, which leads us into you also went and took uh, the LSATs, uh-huh. and you did really well because... Uh, good, good enough. Good enough. Okay, good, good enough. enough. <laughs> yeah. I like that. But you got accepted to a couple different places, or you had a couple different places in mind, and you decide, hey, I'm going to go to 
this place. Uh, what was it? Mi- Mitchell Hamline School of Law. Okay, so you and you're gonna get your law degree there. And then uh, obviously you still have to figure out what law you want to practice and all. But it's funny, you've went through. So you join the army, you get out of the army, realize the army's the thing for me. You get back in, you re- you you go through multiple deployments. You hit, you have this massive life changing sickness. You and somewhere in there you got these degrees at some point. Actually, I earned the degrees after I got sick. Really? Well, I earned the associates before. I was working on my bachelor's when I got sick. I put it on hold for a year, mm-hmm. pro- probably about a year. Right. And then once I was, you know, yeah. of the frame of mind to start again, I finished it. And that's what I earned right before I got assigned to this unit was, you know, my bachelor's. I came here in June, and they actually had the graduation ceremony in July of 2016. Really? Did you attend? Yeah, yeah, okay, I went to yeah. That. yeah, I don't. Yeah, they were cool enough to let me have an afternoon off to go <laughs> graduate from yeah. college. Yeah, oh yeah. I feel like he may have just snuck out on us. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I feel like he might have snuck out hey, on us. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I don't remember him saying he went to a graduation. Yeah. Hey, you guys working? You guys uh, uh, hold it yeah, down. And I'm pretty sure I was like, I told y'all this like a month ago that I was doing this. Yeah. And they still tried to be like, nah. And I was like, I'm going. I, yeah. I got to. I got to do this. So you get the degree, and now, and then, and 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 you're going through. You know, worked here. You went through the retirement phase. Now you're on terminal leave. You're about to start school again to get the law to become a lawyer, an official lawyer, and then you're basically starting a new career again. Insane, man. Why? Why start another career? Or? Just I don't know. Like, well, I think. Uh, I think goals are are really important. Um, if if you just if you r- retire and you don't do anything, you just enjoy your retirement. I feel like you're just kind of and I, no offense to people that do this, but you know you're sitting around waiting to die. Um, I've heard that. And and some people just enjoy the fact that they have all of that free time and they find things to do without you know starting another career. But I I've always you know, I've been a really driven person for a long time and having that goal and having a, a target and something that I'm trying to achieve, uh, you know, it, life is stressful, but if I have goals and I'm, and I'm working towards those goals, it seems like the stress doesn't matter as much. Right. Well, that's, I mean, and I, I find that to be impressive. You know, the fact that you, cause you were literally going in a whole nother direction. Oh yeah. 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 Being a soldier, being a, well, I don't know, being a soldier and a lawyer, you can kind of be the same sometimes. Oh. I've heard you argue. Well, actually, you've argued with me, and I thought, man, you're going to be a really good lawyer one day. <laughs> what you got? Well, you got the army. We have barracks lawyers too, right? Like, oh, ones yeah, who yeah, don't yeah. quite understand law. Hopefully, he's not like that practicing in some back alley somewhere. No, yeah, I, I've always I got got your quickie divorce here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always enjoy it. like when he would he would like kind of like argue something with me or something. I'd be like. Oh, Jeff, why do you have to be good at this? Well, you know? and that's why, so the guys that worked with me under him, that's why he used to get them fired up because we had two that were arguers. And they would argue, and he would just destroy their argument, right? Like he's doing a cross-examination on them. <laughs> and I didn't really argue with them. I was just like, you're not going to win the argument. You're going to have to really be well-prepared to uh, do it. So 
they would complain and oh he he's not listening. No, I feel like he listened and then he shot down what you said and now we're gonna do what we were supposed to do anyway. Yeah. So yeah, no, I've seen him in action, not with me, but I can see how he would argue with you for sure. So when school start? <laughs> August eighteenth. Uh, I'll be in Minnesota. Nineteenth is the first day of class. Right. So. You'll actually be in school before we even release this, because we're gonna re- we're gonna start releasing this um, toward in the September area, and obviously we're recording this rather further bef- a, a, a while before it. But uh, I'm I'm kind of excited to see where this goes for you, man. Uh, but right now, um, you're doing you're doing some uh, some realty work, I see. Yeah. Uh, so kind of a side hustle. hopefully something that i can set my own hours but uh something to be obsessed with and kind of work towards success uh you learn a lot about you know business human interaction contracts there's lawyers involved there's a there's a lot of a lot of moving pieces to you know the exchange of property and money right and uh so i you know i was trying to find a job as a as a paralegal and was kind of hitting a hitting a wall there so you know i have a buddy who's a principal broker over at reliant reliant realty shameless plug uh, <laughs> era powered uh, and he he kind of took me under his wing you know yeah. told me where to get educated because a lot of people just try to learn online and uh you know bomb the test and he was like, no, you need to go actually sit. There's there's a place in Clarksville you can go take classes. They're evening classes for working adults. Right. I was on leave, so I would just, you know, chill all day and then go take classes at night. And, uh, yeah, pass the test first time through. and, and I, would, I, I, I don't doubt that. Yeah, meet, meeting people uh, every day and that are all have different goals and different, you know, reasons, whether they're investors or first-time home buyers or they've had a lot of houses i meet people every day that are all we ask is uh and and you've already heard this from us that you you find a good cameraman to stop doing such close-ups um in your little videos <laughs> gotta sell some houses so i can have a video uh video budget and, and the one you're, the one your uh your son helped you with you he may have to be fired. You <laughs> yeah. can't give direction during I'll, the filming. Yeah. As they say in the South, bless his heart, but he's not a good video man. Yeah. Yeah. No, Poor he, guy. He had a lot of fun doing that. Um, That's cool. And it made me really dizzy watching the videos afterwards. <laughs> I was say, I I was like, did I just go through the uh, what's that the old movie, The Blair Witch Project? <laughs> like that's what I was like. I'm like, where's the little sticks? They're gonna be somewhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I so I'm not even in a market for a house. I'm getting ready to go. You know, I'm going to leave this area. And I still watch these videos just because I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen. It's like, I don't know. I think I want to make a blooper reel. And I'm yeah. looking for something to add to it. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm waiting for after I make a few of them to have that collection on the internet, like the people that get hurt. And now we got this. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this country dude walking around talking about houses. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, but can people connect with you um, through any like certain websites or anything like that, or wh- what's the best way to kind of like see you and what you do, and kind of keep no, basically so people can look you up and get I'm to on, know you? I'm on Facebook, Jeff Watts. Uh, I run uh, Jeff Watts uh, Realtor Reliant Realty uh, Facebook page. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have another website where you can just go and look at, um, and the link is on my Facebook page. You can go look at houses. You can find out how much your roughly how much your house is worth, um, and 
you know, you can look at all the houses in Clarksville. It's like a, a version of Zillow, except for, you know, when you use it, I'll contact you and ask you if you have any questions or need any help. Yeah. Uh, so that's jeff.fortcampbellhomefinder.com. Okay, cool. Well, I hope I hope people do search you out and try, you know, just, I mean, because, I mean, as I can't vouch for you completely, as I don't know how well you are selling houses yet, but I, I mean, by knowing you for the year, the year or so, year and a half, however long we've known each other, I, I would definitely say if I was looking to buy a house, I'd probably buy them from Jeff Watts, you know, I mean, just, just, I appreciate it. He's an honest guy. We'll talk later. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> That's why I have a stack of your cards are on my really, desk. Are you really selling a castle? Did I see a castle on there or something the other day? That's on Zillow. Oh, I and thought I, it was you. Was yeah. Is on a castle? So I just, uh, you know, I shared the link and I was like, you don't have to go through Zillow to buy a castle. You can just talk to me. Oh, look at this guy, man. That's marketing. I'm yeah. just saying, as a, as a history military history major, I could be in the market for a castle if you could loan me some money. I actually kind of <laughs> sort of got a lead off of that. Really, <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised what people will, will be like. Are you selling that castle? Oh, can can you get me one? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, give me some two by fours and a couple piece of plywood. No, yeah. you gotta have a moat and bailey and yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna kind of finalize this. We've been well, goodness, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half. Um, I kind of gave you some uh something to think about throughout, and you actually were doing some research and looking at some stuff before we got started. What we want to ask, and this is what something Ed and I are gonna start asking each interviewer we do, but it doesn't have to be your top three. It could be any, but what are th- who and why of three influences that you have? All right. Uh, so I had to think about this for a second, and I wrote them down just because I had a feeling I would forget, and I had <laughs> forgotten when I wrote it down who the third one was, and that's why when y'all saw me typing on my phone, like I was trying to remember who the third one I wanted to bring up was. So, uh, uh, well, the first one is my dad. He's a big influence. You know, he was drafted in the military. Um, he's always worked really hard. He used to work like 60 to 80 hours a week. He's having his 70th birthday this year, and he still works full-time on Internet Connection from his home. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so he's still still getting it, collecting Social Security and still killing it in the computer programming world. Um, so he's a big influence, and, you know, he's always been there to help me out, so I appreciate it. Um, the second one was uh, Sergeant First Class Retired Johnny Smith. He was my platoon sergeant on my last tour to Iraq. And uh, he had a unique perspective. He grew up in Tennessee. Um, and he just had a really level head and a leadership style that I respected a lot. And uh, it was it was the last Sergeant First Class I worked for in the infantry before I got my Sergeant First Class. <laughs> and... Uh, he, you know, I kind of modeled, uh, once I, once the drill sergeant wore off a little bit, cause I kind of came in swinging a hammer and then I calmed down after a couple weeks and I kind of tried to model my leadership style, you know, off of, off of his, uh, leadership style. Um, and you know, now he's working in the coal mines in Arkansas and we're still in touch and, and, and talk all the time. And the last one, and, uh, you might have been the first one that pointed out to me, but Grant Cardone. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's a he's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and whether you were the one who said it or not, somebody else said it. And after two or three people said it, you know, I started watching the videos, yeah. and I really got captivated. And the reason why he's an influence to me is because 
it doesn't seem like i mean i know he's selling product while he's doing everything that he does and he's really obsessed he said uh be obsessed or be mediocre is kind of his little mantra thing but what really blows my mind is that um you know the whole you know what we were taught about money growing up and the way that we we learned how to handle uh money and the lessons he tries to share with people for basically free hey watch my youtube videos and you're going to learn something about being an entrepreneur about being an investor um so i i i watch his videos a lot and he's really opened my mind to uh to a lot of things wow uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, um, I've watched a lot of Grant Cardone stuff and I would love to meet your dad. I, cause I, you know, you've said many things about him, but, uh, do you have anything else, Ed? Uh, no, I don't think I do. I don't think I, we've learned a lot about him and this definitely is going to spawn something different between all of us. So actually, as we kind of like, you know, finishing this up, we want to say thank you very much for, you know, one for your service two for never quitting. So we could meet you. <laughs> And three for just you know being a part of this podcast and kind of sharing your story. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a it was a good time. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming in. I can tell you there's many days uh, uh, working together that maybe I wasn't in the greatest of moods. I was struggling to learn to do the senior thing, and you would just say something so off the wall in our crackling that would make me laugh, and and it improved my day. So I appreciate that. I think that's why the three of us get along so well because we're kind of of a similar mind with humor. So definitely appreciate having you here. I'm glad somebody thought of it. Well, this has been the Instinctive Influences Podcast.